Welcome to episode 91 of Primary Care Update. I'm Mark A. Bell, a family physician and professor at the University of Georgia and editor-in-chief of Essential Evidence Plus. I'm Kate Rowland, family physician and associate professor at Rush University. I'm John Hickner, family physician and editor-in-chief of the Journal of Family Practice. Hi, I'm Henry Barry, another family physician and one of the co-founders of InfoPoems. Uh, I first want to apologize. We had a production hiccup so that our last episode came out quite late, and we apologize for that. Uh, we also are recording on the day before Thanksgiving. So first of all, we hope that you all have a, a, a lovely time with friends and family and loved ones if you can. Uh, this marks the beginnings of the major um, religious and secular holidays. And so as you launch into these, we wish you joy and peace. And if you are traveling, that you are safe. Thanks, Henry. On this Primary Care Update podcast, we highlight patient-oriented evidence that matters or poems. If you want to get all of the poems, one a day in your email, subscribe to Essential Evidence, where you get that poem plus a great primary care reference with over 800 chapters and thousands of interactive decision support tools. Check it out at EssentialEvidencePlus.com. The opinions expressed on Primary Care Update are those of the commentators, and this podcast doesn't represent medical advice or the endorsement of any product, although we will criticize products quite regularly. <laughs> For a nominal fee, you can receive CME credit from the Illinois Academy of Family Physicians. Go to IAFP.com and click on their education webpage to check it out. This week, cognitive outcomes of pediatric iron supplementation, IL-6 antagonists for persons with COVID, inhaled steroids for COVID, and platelet-rich plasma for Achilles tendinopathy. Kate's going to start us off. You bet I am. So this week, I have a randomized controlled trial looking at the implications of iron supplementation in children in Bangladesh who were at high risk of iron deficiency anemia. So screening and treatment of iron deficiency anemia is common in high-income countries like the U.S. The American Academy of Pediatrics recommends screening for infants between the ages of 9 and 12 months, and is sub that's subsequently followed if indicated by iron supplementation for kids that we find do have anemia. But it turns out that that find anemia, treat anemia, improve lives pathway isn't actually as straightforward as we'd think. In 2015, the USPSTF concluded that evidence was insufficient to recommend screening for iron deficiency uh, anemia in infants between the ages of 6 and 24 months. That was the spectrum of, of ages that they did their review over. So the previous recommendation, I thought this was interesting, which was from 2006, also recommended skipping the screening and just giving iron to kids who we thought were, were at risk for iron deficiency. And the rationale for this seemingly surprising recommendation was, again, the lack of evidence that screening asymptomatic kids leads to better patient-oriented outcome uh, poems, if you will, such as neurodevelopmental or cognitive outcomes. Change in hemoglobin, which could be affected, is, of course, not as a disease-oriented outcome and not a poem. So anyways, back to the study. So this study looked at patient-oriented outcomes in high-risk kids in Bangladesh. So if the prevalence of iron deficiency anemia is about 2% in the U.S., it can be as high as 40% worldwide, with the majority of those in low- and middle-income countries. So this trial look, looked at about uh, 3,300 developmentally normal eight-month-olds living in an area with little iron in the groundwater, and those with severe malnutrition or severe anemia, which they defined as a hemoglobin less than eight uh, at baseline. About a third in each group had mild iron deficiency anemia. So these kids were randomized to receive either to receive one of three to one of three groups, either iron in a syrup once a day plus placebo vitamin powder, 
or placebo syrup with a powder that contained iron, vitamin A, vitamin C, folic acid, and zinc, or placebo both of those things, both the placebo syrup and the placebo powder. So the kids took the assigned meds for three months, and then they were assessed for cognitive and developmental outcomes at both three and then nine months after they began the trial. And what they found is that there were no differences in either treatment group, between the two treatment groups, uh, with regard to any of those cognitive or developmental outcomes. Not surprisingly, the interventions did reduce the, the likelihood of being iron deficient or having iron deficiency anemia, but for these specific pediatric outcomes, no differences. Bottom line, this echoes other research. Iron supplementation, even in high-risk kids, does not improve the poems that were assessed in the study. Always a possibility that it could improve other poems, lifelong, decreased risk of other bleeding outcomes later in life. Uh, but until we have that evidence, this is where we leave it. Henry, what do you think about this one? Thank you, Kate. This has maybe three levels of um, reminders for me. One is that we talk about a lot about studies that are done in industrialized countries and assume that they apply for everybody. And in this case, it's an example of looking at global health issues and trying to look at something that's much more prevalent around the world than in ours. So thank you for reminding us of that. The second uh, a theme is that of when you have a negative trial, uh, one of the things that we think about is whether or not they had an adequate number of individuals. And in this case, with 3,300, I didn't do a formal sample size assessment, but I assume that that's probably big enough to detect at least modest differences in cognitive development. The, the issue, though, is, is this really long enough follow-up, three and nine months worth of follow-up? Is that really long enough to detect cognitive um, developmental differences? And then the third point is that um, cognitive development is really a complex construct, and I suspect that there are many influences, including what are the opportunities that these um, um, little ones have to for language and gross motor development. And so, you know, the key here is that iron supplementation, while it probably didn't have much of an effect, it probably means that iron deficiency anemia is probably not a significant contributor in rural Bangladesh. John, go ahead. Any comments? When I practiced in Chicago, we had a high percent of kids who were inner city and a high percent of whom were iron deficient. Uh, we, however, were still screening, and certainly this study strongly suggests that rather than screening, if we're going to do anything, just go ahead and give some iron supplementation, <clears throat> although it, it appears that it's unlikely that the iron supplementation is likely to affect any patient-oriented outcomes. But as you point out, I too was concerned about the duration of iron supplementation and follow-up in this study. So I think there's still a little bit of an open question, but I think this does advance the science somewhat. Thanks, John. Um, yeah, I know it was certainly the um, when I was on the task force, the eye recommendation for um, screening for iron was controversial. And I know the American Academy of Pediatrics, as you said, does still recommend it. So here's the quiz this week. Which one of the following has the smallest or best number needed to screen to prevent one death due to that cancer? Mammography for women 50 to 75 years, CT screening for lung cancer in smokers 50 to 85, screening for colorectal cancer using any method, and screening for prostate cancer using PSA. Stay tuned. Henry, you've got the next poem for us. 
This is a study from the World Health Organization, Rapid Evidence Appraisal for COVID Therapies, the REACT Working Group. And it asks whether interleukin-6 antagonists are effective in decreasing mortality among persons hospitalized with COVID. This was published in JAMA uh, late this past summer. And this was a meta-analysis, and it was a little bit of an interesting take on that. They started off by searching clinical trials registries to identify randomized trials. Most of the time, we're hearing people searching um, Medline and other um, bibliographic databases. But in a circumstance where there's rapidly evolving evidence during, such as during COVID and the long delay in publications, this is actually a very reasonable approach. And to illustrate the point is that of the 29 eligible trials that they identified, uh, nine had only uh, had been published. And of the other um, studies, one didn't provide them with data in time for their analysis, and one was still underway. So that left 27 individual trials of these interleukin-6 um, antagonists that had just under 11,000 patients. Oh, by the way, that represented about 95% of all of the patients in those eligible trials. 19 of the studies looked at tocilizumab, uh, nine looked at serolumab and only one looked at siltuximab. So the preponderance is on tocilizumab that we've talked about in the past. When they did their global analysis, looking at all of these um, three agents, what they found was that the all-cause mortality at 28 days was lower in the treated group. A number needed to treat of 25, but they found a fair amount of heterogeneity, variability among those results. And when they tried to look at individual agents, it turns out most of that heterogeneity disappeared. And when you really look carefully, it turns out that tocilizumab was the only agent of the three that decreased 28-day mortality, a number needed to treat of around 21. Now, the data are really messy with um, various co-interventions and comparison groups. And when they tried to tease out the independent effect uh, of the uh, corticosteroids versus the IL-6 agents, it turns out that um, none of the agents were effective in patients who were also not receiving um, the corticosteroids. So the authors were a little bit circumspect and said, well, it looks like there is an association, but because of this strong association with the corticosteroids, we can't say that there's an independent benefit. Now, I, I have to challenge them because they said that this looks like it's a class effect when in fact it's really just a single agent, tocilizumab. So I think the jury is still out on the other agents. Um, keep in mind, these are primarily for those hospitalized individuals. Now, for our milder um, uh, patients with milder symptoms, there are some newer agents on the horizon, but so far all I've seen are press releases and no published data. Mark. Yeah, the, the IL-6 antagonists, clearly just for the folks who are seriously ill and in the hospital. And, um, you know, I would say there, I, I would, there probably is some benefit, some small benefit. And if you have a really sick patient, there is this tendency to, you know, throw the kitchen sink at them. And, and I might put that in with the kitchen sink uh, in those patients. Uh, safety so far appears to be quite good with these monoclonal antibodies. So uh, besides the cost and, and complexity, adding the complexity of care, 
um, I would you know probably tend to use these based on these data and uh, in patients who are also uh, have an indication for a steroid. Kate? Yeah, one of the biggest challenges that we've had is just drug availability. There have been shortages of TOSI. Um, and mm-hmm. so just, you know, trying to to choose the the patients who are of the groups of patients who are eligible for it as we're starting to see cases creep back up. Um, just choosing the patients who, if we've got six patients who are eligible and we only have four doses. Um, and, and that's, you know, right back to the questions where we were at the beginning of the pandemic of, you know, trying, trying to decide which patients get the medication, which is heartbreaking, you know, for the doctors and, and obviously not a great situation for the patients either. But um, yeah, I think uh, just to back to your point, Henry, about um, is it a class effect or is it mainly the TOSI? Uh, the IDSA guideline, and I don't want to say guideline, their summary of evidence, because I don't think it quite reaches the level of a guideline. Um, they essentially say use sorry only if uh, TOSI isn't available, um, essentially mm-hmm. saying that the evidence isn't quite there yet um, to support sorry. And I think it is just, you know, the quantity of evidence uh, to support that recommendation. I would Thanks, point Kate. out that these drugs are not silver bullets. Looking at that number needed to treat, you have to treat at least 20 patients to save one of them. Uh, so the the need for vaccination obviously is is still in the front of our minds. I had two acquaintances die within the last two weeks uh, who probably had this kind of treatment. So we still need to continue pushing, encouraging vaccination and not lie, rely on these drugs. Hopefully better therapeutic agents will be coming, but we don't have them yet. Thanks, John. Um, I'm up next, and this is not actually a poem. This is based on uh, some stuff I've been working on the last couple of days, and it has to do with inhaled steroids for outpatients with newly diagnosed COVID-19, typically uh, within three to five days of diagnosis. There have been four studies, and two of them dropped this week. Uh, There were two British studies initially, the STOIC and PRINCIPLE trials that used budesonide, and two U.S. studies using cyclesonide. Both are inhaled corticosteroids. They all used an intention to treat analysis. The U.S. studies using cyclesonide were double-blinded. The largest U.K. trial was open-label. This is important because one of the main um, outcomes is, did the patient seek care in the ED or hospital? And you might imagine if they knew they weren't getting active drug, maybe they'd be more likely to go in and seek that extra care. So the first study was STOIC, 146 persons, and it showed a large reduction in ED visits or hospitalization with an NNT of eight. The follow-up by the same group at Oxford University was the principal trial, over 1,400 patients, and that found a much smaller effect that actually wasn't statistically significant. The, if you did calculate an NNT, it would have been about 30. Now, recently, just this week, two studies of cyclesonide were published in JAMA and BMJ, The BMJ study had 200 patients. It only reported symptom reduction, was underpowered, and found no significant differences between groups. They didn't report the ED or hospitalization outcome. The larger study in JAMA by Clemency and colleagues, over 400 patients, they found no significant difference in the primary outcome of symptom duration, but they did find a significant reduction in need for ED visit or hospitalization with an NNT of about 23. It was 1% in the steroid group, 5.4% in the placebo group. And that was a double-blinded trial, which makes that outcome more believable. So I I did a little mini meta-analysis. I started to do meta-analysis of these four studies. And what you see is some trends 
in the direction of benefit, but nothing statistically significant yet, other than actually the hospitalization outcome, which had a relative risk of 0.73 and did uh, with a p-value of 0.03, and it did achieve statistical significance. The ED or hospitalization outcome was a relative risk of 0.37, but not statistically significant. All of the point estimates, all of the effects, all of the summaries are in the direction of benefit, but we're not quite there yet in terms of sample size. There are seven or eight other studies that are registered at clinicaltrials.gov. So this is an evolving story. My sense is that there may be some benefit. Uh, Certainly, I think there's minimal harm in all of these studies and uh, pretty low cost. So this is something I think to at least consider in your outpatients, particularly those who might be at higher risk um, and who, for example, if you can't get one of those brand new drugs yet, the um, it starts with an M and ends with Veer. That's all, all I can remember. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, but they are, uh, you know, this might be kind of a stopgap measure. Interested what you think, John? Yes, it, it seems like something that's worth a try. The cost is not exorbitant and it may have some positive effect. You all can't see the v- very nice charts that Mark has included <laughs> in the text uh, for this showing the results of his mini meta-analysis. But remember that if you go to the IAFP website and seek CME credit, we do put the text of this in that uh, website so you can see the charts as well. So Mark, thanks for doing that for us. Sure, happy to do it. Kate, any uh, thoughts on this one? So many thoughts, Mark. So when I read Stoic, um, at first I was like, this is going to be amazing. And then I actually read the study and I I was a little bit um, less amazed uh, because like you said, it, it wasn't you know really a very well done study. Um, it, there were just so many opportunities for bias with, with the lack of, of, uh, of blinding. Um, and the fact that it was mainly the fact that it was open label and, and you know, say and the people in the recruiting materials, um, which I read, uh, which I don't recommend that everybody necessarily read, but it actually said we're recruiting people for a study um, looking at uh, looking at the use of inhaled steroids to treat COVID symptoms. Um, so they absolutely knew people in the in the placebo group that they were not getting the active treatment. Um, so that was very disappointing because I would love to be able to have something that's already readily available to treat COVID symptoms in outpatients because there's many outpatients with COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, so then principal comes along and you're like, okay, great. This is a better, you know, bigger trial, potentially better, um, but unfortunately not significant. So then, to, you know, today I'm reading these new new studies that are, you know, somewhat better methodologically, but contain a medication that I have never heard of until this day. Uh, so I had spent some time figuring out cyclesonide, um, and it may just be, I would like to think my young age, uh, that meant that I had never heard of it before. Um, apparently it is FDA approved. I, I don't know. Maybe you, you all can fill me in on whether this is something that you have used previously. I hadn't heard of it either till these studies and, uh, but yeah, it's FDA approved. I did look at that. I haven't tried to prescribe it yet, but um, I, I think I'm with you. Like I would, I would like to believe it. The risk of harm, like somebody said, seems small. Um, it's do, does not yet show up on anybody's recommendations. Um, you know, neither the NIH, uh, you know, big big pool of guidelines, nor the IDSA suggests this. But um, I'm I'm st- I, I'm sort of optimistic in spite of our, our somewhat mixed uh, mixed pool and and these new new studies. I think uh, are certainly more more hopeful methodologically um, than the ones that we've already had. 
Yeah, the drug name is called it's Alvesco is the trade name. So Alvesco, if you were looking to, if you're looking to prescribe this particular one, um, we'll see. It may be a class effect though, so it may not matter, or there may be no effect at all. We'll have to see when we get those remaining trials in and put all the data together. John, it's your turn to talk about platelet-rich plasma injections. Yes, yeah, speaking of the need for larger and better studies about PRP, here is one. Uh, this study seeks to answer the question, is an injection of platelet-rich plasma effective in reducing pain and improving function in adults with chronic mid-portion Achilles tendinopathy? Uh, this study appeared in JAMA uh, this year. Kearney is the principal author, and the study is definitely worth looking at. And here it is. Uh, Platelet-rich plasma injections supposedly promote tendon repair by concentrating growth factor at the site of chronic degeneration. So that's believed to be the mechanism of action if there is one. These investigators identified 240 adults. Now, most PRP studies have been 30, 40, 50. That's why this one is important. 240 adults with pain at the mid-portion of the Achilles tendon for at least three months and the tendinopathy was confirmed by ultrasound or MRI, or some had both. The patients then received by concealed allocation, so this was double-blinded, uh, PRP injection, which was done by palpa palpation, or they received a sham injection, which is a dry injection inserted under the skin, underline, overline the tendon, so that patients uh, had a reasonable um, belief that they were treated in both cases, and they were unaware of the group assignment. Complete follow-up occurred for 92% of the patients at six months, which is what the primary outcome was. And they used a, a questionnaire called the Visa-A, which contains eight questions that cover three domains of pain, function, and activity on a 100-point scale. The PRP group at six months was rated 54.4 and the sham injection 53.3. And you can eyeball that and tell that that's not a significant difference. They also measured outcomes at three months. I was interested in, in more proximal outcomes and there was no difference whatsoever at three months. Well, was this study big enough? I said 240 adults. It was 90% powered to detect a predetermined clinically significant difference uh, in the outcome on this particular scale, which was judged to be about 12 points. And you see there was about a one point difference. So it's very unlikely that the study had a false negative outcome. So we've, we've presented studies on PRP before. PRP has been <clears throat> injected in just about every tendon and joint in the human body. And the results have been equivocal at best with small uh, effect sizes at best, but mostly smaller studies that weren't as well done. I would point out that just this month, there's another large study about PRP for knee osteoarthritis that was published in JAMA. I didn't have time to summarize that. Uh, very well done study, also negative. So uh, PRP still out there, but I, I just have a feeling it's going to go by the wayside. Kate, what, what's your, what do you think about this? I have a question that, that you may or may not know the answer to. So was it, was, was there a significant placebo effect in the placebo group or was the PRP, were, were both the PRP and the placebo not particularly effective? Uh, you know, I'm, I'm not sure. I'd have to go back and look at the paper. I didn't look for that when I looked at the original paper. 
But I think you can bet that in both groups, there was uh, a fair amount of improvement because uh, Achilles tendinopathy does get better over time. I'll have to check on that. Yeah, that, that would be my guess too. And you know, I think that's just, just sort of the, one of the takeaways from a lot of these PRP studies is injecting things or sham injecting things um, is a very effective placebo. Um, yeah, we just published a clinical inquiry in JFP, Journal of Family Practice. So if you look at that, it was just published this last month. It was a nice study of various kinds of injections, not PRP. Uh, in that case, it was for tennis elbow, I believe. And, and basically, everybody got better at the same rate, whether they had a placebo or, or whatnot. So all of these injections uh, for tendinopathies are suspect at best. So um, we've reviewed, as John pointed out, many of these studies of uh, platelet-rich uh, plasma. And the bottom line is that mo most of these, the methodologic quality is poor, which is usually biased in favor of the intervention. And those studies, those small crappy little studies have failed to really demonstrate anything meaningful. And this is a larger study that confirms that there probably is nothing to that. So for me, this is an SOS study, same old stuff, and that other than corticosteroids, maybe for some uh, specific musculoskeletal conditions, we just need to stop injecting crap, and I might say expensive crap, into tendons and joints. Thanks, Henry. This is a good example of what we see often over time is the initial studies that get published are sometimes the outliers, the little study that happened to randomly find a big effect. But then as more and more data accumulates, as better and better studies are done with proper sham injections and sham controls and placebos, we see less effects. Sometimes we still see persistent effect and benefit, but it's usually muted compared to the initial uh, trials that are published. So uh, thanks for bringing that one to us. I'm going to give you the answer now to the quiz. Remember, we asked which one of the following has the smallest or best number needed to screen to prevent one death due to that cancer? Mammography, CT for lung cancer, colorectal cancer screening, or prostate cancer screening? Definitely not prostate cancer screening. If there is a mortality benefit, it's about one for every thousand people screened or men screened. Breast cancer screening is a bit better, around 800 overall, and approaches 400 in women in their 60s who, who have the most uh, benefit. Lung cancer screening wouldn't be a bad answer. The number needed to screen is between 200 and 300. It's the only test shown to reduce all-cause mortality as well, and it also has the best number needed to screen based on randomized trials. But if you look at good quality modeling studies that were done for the task force, the number needed to screen for colorectal screening, regardless of which test you choose, is around 50, with 20 deaths prevented for every 1,000 persons screened. So make sure you recommend colorectal cancer screening to all your patients, and lung cancer screening should be discussed with your patients at risk because of their smoking history. So thanks, everyone, for uh, listening today. We've enjoyed um, this pre-Thanksgiving podcast. Here's the uh, link for getting CME credit is uh, IAFP.com and click on the education webpage. Um, the Illinois Academy of Family Physicians is accredited by the ACCME to provide CME for physicians. They designate this podcast for one half AMA category one credit. The IAFP adheres to the conflict of interest policy of the ACCME and the AMA, and you can read our complete disclosure on their website. Hope you enjoyed today's discussion. Tell your friends, rate us on iTunes. We'll talk to you soon with more primary care updates.